Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses worked your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back. Prom party. Hello. We are so glad that you are here to join us on a movie that is kind of uh, throwing something into a little left field compared to what we've been doing lately. We're going to go places. Ew. It's the name of the movie. How dare you? They're so subtle about it in the movie. This movie, honestly, though, (laughs) in rewatching it, I had a lot of Leo DiCaprio snap and point at screen moments because... I forgot how frequently they say the title of the movie in this one. <laughs> it's a single sentence, though. I'll tell you what. It was really frustrating trying to look up where this movie was, because when you type go, you will get anything else that isn't this movie. <laughs> yeah, that is that is for sure. Friends, we are really excited, though, because if you haven't been able to hear from the slight chuckling in the background, we are not alone today. Why is it spooky? I don't know. I wanted it to be spooky. That's like my go-to voice whenever I have to say something. I turn into a Scooby-Doo villain, and I'm okay with that. That's just who I am. Yeah, it's true. But friends, our guest today and the person who chose this movie is responsible for a lot of you listening to us, because every other day on Patreon, somebody will message and be like, we started listening to this podcast because of Harmony on You Are Good, formerly Why Are Dads, which is always really exciting. So, friends, Daddy's home. <laughs> and this week, we are joined by one of the co-hosts of You Are Good, formerly Why Are Dads, the amazing Alex Steed. Hi, Alex. Hello. I'm so excited. This is great. I love your show so, so much. I love your show so, so much. And so this is the best. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're able to be here and we're, we're able to like kind of complete the circle of now being on each other's shows. And absolutely. Well, totally. And we're going to com- we're going to double the circle because Harmony, excuse me, because BJ will have to come on the show and then Sarah will have to go on your mm-hmm. show. And yes. then it'll be it'll be the double rainbow all the time. And then the cycle resets. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Some beast is unleashed from under <laughs> under the earth. God, we can only ideally. Hope. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alex, oh. what movie did you bring to us today? So I brought to you the movie Go, which we were chatting right before we started recording. And it's a movie that was very formative from when it came out. And I haven't seen it since when it was formative for me. So mm-hmm. I know it's a movie I, I'd watched a handful of times. I know very well. I remembered kind of all of the parts, but it's unique in that I don't think I've seen this movie for at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. So oh, wow. it was 
it was fascinating to go from it, it, watching this movie that definitely had an imprint on me that I remembered it being like, a, I mean, it's not really in retrospect, but it feeling at the time like a sophisticated teen movie because it showed <laughs> teens being reckless assholes in the way that I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And and I felt represented by that in a way I didn't feel represented by like Blaine in a in um uh pretty in pink. And so so that felt really important to me. And so I really I think wanted to talk about and explore that a little bit, but also just to have an excuse to revisit this. <laughs> That's wonderful. This is this is definitely a favorite of mine. That is one of those movies that I forget is a favorite of mine until I watch it. It's like, oh yeah, no, I really enjoy this movie. Um, Harmony, what is your history with this movie, if at all? I didn't know this was a movie. <laughs> I had no idea what this was. I'd never heard of it. And uh, I got to say, as far as like Tarantino for teens goes, this is a wild experience. <laughs> so that, that's exactly what it is. It's Tarantino for teens. That's exactly <laughs> what this movie is. And I'm really glad. I think that... a little clerks, a little dollar. Oh, yeah, clerks. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's, I think, the last time that I watched this movie was when I was in college taking like mm. intro to film whatever the fuck and having a bunch of guys being like, well, Tarantino's an auteur. And it's like, yeah, well, have you seen Go? <laughs> like, let me push up my hipster glasses a little harder. Because it's also important to note that there is a, like, slight generation gap between us. Um, because mm. I'm on the, uh, I guess, middle part of a millennial. I think I'm, like, a true-to-form millennial. I'm born in 1990. So I'm nine years old when this movie came out. Mm. And... I'm not going to ask you how old you are, Alex, but I presume I'm 38. You, I was like, I I'm presume an, you were a teenager when this. Came yeah, out. I'm like the very oldest millennial. I'm like the oldest, oldest millennial before you get deep into that, like uh, cusp territory that a lot of people talk about, like the Xennial thing. Although I, I kind of I that resonates with me because a lot of my friends were older, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, this came out like wet solidly when I was a teenager and it came out in the middle of the pop techno uh, thing that mm-hmm, happened mm-hmm. in the Uni- in the United States because, like you know, like Maine caught up with uh, uh, techno, uh, you know, t- ten to fifteen years after, <laughs> <laughs> and that was important. And and you know, you could you could go to like raves in the woods here, like there, you know, there they uh, it caught a lot of what was going on in teen life, and again, it felt sophisticated. Um, in ways that I think actually are sophisticated, but in re- in retrospect, you know, it feels feels a little funny. I like that Maine caught up just in time for Y two K. That's <laughs> we that's caught great. up for like Limp Bizkit. We were like, all right, let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. I guess I don't know. Limp Bizkit's yeah. having a resurgence right now, and I'm not happy it's about wild. it. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. Yeah, it's wild. Everyone's uh, like hearing Fred Durst just be like, man, uh, you should get vaccinated in the middle of a concert. Everyone's like, dude, is Fred Durst actually a cool dude? And I'm like, he's not. He's just not an idiot. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing happened with Axl Rose a number of years ago is like Axl Rose would like would talk shit to Trump all the time on Twitter. And uh, and people were like, what, Axl? And it's like, yeah, he's still terrible, yeah. but he's doing a good thing right now. We're messy. We're a messy species. You can, you can be both. You can hate Trump and be a bad person. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can. <laughs> <laughs> 
all I can think about now with like modern Fred Durst is that he he made his movie. Oh no! Uh, with Devin Sawa, who is re- genuinely doing the best that he can. Seems mm-hmm. so great. Yeah, yeah. He's he's doing a very good job in it, but it's you know Devin Sawa and and. John Travolta, and at one point Devin Sawa is driving with I think like his kid, and he's listening to Limp Biscuit on the radio. That's great. And he's like, "You ever heard of this Limp Biscuit? It's like song for a generation, like some like really cheesy thing." And I'm like, "Ah, oh, Fred, why did you do that to him? Why did you make Devin Sawa say these things?" Uh, I mean, that's a sad time. I'll be saying though, Roland does slap. Get out. Does I would I would say <laughs> I would also stand by for what it was. I will not make excuses for it necessarily, <laughs> but I will stand by the Faith remake, the George Mike. I, I can, think that's an okay cover. I can't. Yeah, I as a as a cover from the late '90s goes, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, is it any better or worse than like the Smooth Criminal cover? No, um, it's not. Or yes, maybe it is. Maybe BJ. BJ will argue. I'd say that they're pretty well even. Honestly, I'm not going to defend Limbiscuit. I'd say that they're doing more adventurous stuff than Alien and Farm are because they're basically just like, hey, it's Smooth Criminal, but now there's guitars and it's kind of like new metal, but not really. Yeah, I you got, guess. You, for, for, you, for you at home, I'm watching some serious tension on my screen. <laughs> I just can't get behind... Like Fred Durst taking over George Michael and like completely, oh fair, de- completely de-gaying that song. Oh, At least yeah, Alien Ant Farm is like smooth criminal. It's still gonna be like poppy and upbeat and fun. That's just that's where I sit on that. Yeah, that I mean, totally, uh, that's a that's a great point. They really sucked. <laughs> they really sucked every ounce of queerness out of that. Yeah, Faith is very fun <laughs> still. If you like punching walls in your spare time. <laughs> Yes. Beautiful. <laughs> well, speaking of punching walls, uh, Harmony, what was going on culturally in 1999? Oh, God. When um, I feel like we were like getting into that new metal, let's break stuff and yell about our dads uh, sort of time frame. But I want to know what's going on cinematically. So what oh. landscape did Go pop into? I mean, I'll tell you what. I don't know if any of these movies involve a lot of wall punching because <laughs> stuff like Fight Club is not on the list because it's not really a true to form teen movie, even though teens were obsessed with it because and they you know, still cinema are. oh but, i was that 16 year i was that insufferable asshole I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited to hear what else came out on this list because i'm sure i saw it all oh god um so we've covered 1999 and like looking back on it in other other films but i will say that uh 99 is probably the most stacked year for teen movies period is this the she's all that year Oh, okay. Yeah, this is a stacked. Oh, this is the most (laughs) stacked year for teen movies possible. So here's a quick laundry list of things that were released this year. And then I'll get to a little side thing at the side. So things that came out this year are 10 things I hate about you. Jawbreaker. But I'm a cheerleader. Holy shit. Drive me crazy. The Rage Carry 2, which BJ loves. <gasps> My sweet angel neglected I can't baby. It came out that long ago. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and because this is a movie that it's also kind of teen boyish, I'm gonna highlight a few of the major teen boy movies like American Pie, Jeez. Detroit Rock City. Yes. Oh yeah. Which I love. And the Edward Blues. Furlong classic. Oh yes. god. I mean, I own the poster for Detroit Rock City. It's yes. it's incredible. And when we really want to get into like cinema of teen <laughs> stuff, you get things like The Virgin Suicides, 
Oh, Cruel wow. Intentions. And I guess American Beauty. Yeah, this is totally yeah. this is that's su- this is such a great point. Like I said this on the podcast once and I had to correct or clarify to so many people, but I was like, I was talking about like when I was a kid and I liked cinema, mm-hmm. you know, and like and and someone was like, Is it cinema with like an S? Like what movie is that? I was like, No, 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 no. Like I was a pretentious shithead that like watched <laughs> this wave of movies that came out at this time and then like independent movies that came out like a couple years before and like going back like to Manny and mm-hmm. Low, and then like just independent mid 90s movies and I liked cinema and like this yeah this was a huge year for honoring 16 year old boys who liked cinema yes I mean I remember being like 14 and thinking Donnie Darko was the deepest movie I'd ever of seen course. <laughs> of yeah. course yeah so, of course. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. yeah, this is really where we're starting to, um, like, the formula of the 90s has been completely solidified for teen movies. This is also the year, like, the first full year we had DCOMs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Smart House and Don't Look Under the Bed and Johnny Tsunami and all these other things were coming out. Mm. And I will say that I, I, I think we were trying to step outside and redefine what we could do with teenage stories. And I think Go does it in a way that nothing else was at the time. And that probably worked to its detriment mm. because a, a lot of the movies I listed like Jawbreaker or, but I'm a cheerleader. were not really successful at the time. They became cult classics later on, but just looking at the, even the month that Go was released, it went up against idle hands election and released on the same day. Never been kissed. Oh, holy crap. Yeah, Election was another huge one for me as like a teen movie that wasn't really a teen movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it wasn't in retrospect, but I was like, Reese Witherspoon's in this. Like, this is, and I saw it and it just fucking blew my brain out of my <laughs> There's head. There's a teen in it. There, <laughs> there are multiple teens in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's that There's that, that, that dense guy from the American Pie movies. Yeah, oh, Chris. It's, it's, yeah, like we that. got Chris Klein, who is forever my favorite shitbag in Just Friends when he's playing guitar. (laughs) Ah, yes. Dusty. The little sister character whose name I always forget, but she's like a baby dyke, and I love her very much because she also gives no fucks, and I really wanted to be like her growing up, but I was Tracy Flick, and I accept that. <laughs> oh my god, that's that's fantastic. This was also like the same. Uh, this was the same year that I had to look this up to realize it was the case. But like, sp- it was the same like cluster of years that like Splendor and Nowhere came out, which were like Greg Araki movies, mm-hmm. and James Duvall, who was in this, like kind of in passing, was in those movies. And I remember being like so into that. So there were all these like. There were teen movies and then there were like very alternative teen movies that were mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. that still felt like possible, not just like possible, but like a little dangerous in a way that um, I don't know. It really it kind of it spoke to me and it, it gave me especially again, like being a kid in rural Maine, like it gave me a window into being like, oh, OK, like some other stuff is happening that other people are acknowledging. That's good to know. There's this very interesting trend that we are playing in in the late 90s, where we have things like Gregoraki and New Queer Cinema, which is also why, like, Jamie Babbitt falls into this. But then at the same time, we're also getting this, like, weird... You can't call it Uncanny Valley. That's not completely Mm -hmm. accurate. But this really interesting look at kind of 
poverty suburbia, if that makes sense, like a lot of like Todd Salon's mm-hmm. films, Kevin Smith films, where you're dealing with this subsection of America that really hasn't been highlighted before outside of like, here's the one poor character in a John Hughes movie. It's like, no, this is about working class people who are dealing with a lot of like weird stuff and here's the way we all live and it's weird. No one has these beautiful like three-story homes and no one's like these ultra pretty people. It's like kind of fucked up. And I think that was something people really resonated with because that representation is important. And then, you know, we we immediately jump into the 2000s, which is as, uh, as Bruce LaBruce calls it, the decade of bad straight camp. (laughs) <laughs> where everything is really shiny and trying so hard to be progressive that it oh, like, God. sucks yeah. out any of the edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, it felt I felt very alone in that decade. Like I felt like <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on on screens. Yeah, it's a decade that made me just like feel really bad about myself because then everybody was the prettiest person I had ever seen in my life. And I'm like, this is not relatable. I need to go back to watching Welcome to the Dollhouse because that's where I fit in. Absolutely. Oh, wiener dog. It it was not a a decade of the everyman or woman, I don't think. it's so it's so interesting that you say that thing about like it's like they're working class and they're like literally working and I didn't mm-hmm. even I never put that together as like this is probably a huge reason why this movie resonated is I started working under the table for f- I think 475 an hour washing dishes at age 12. I spent like the majority of my teenage working and to see like and I'm realizing this now is like just we open seeing Sarah Polly working. Mm-hmm. And and like she's also like I I think Sarah Polly is outstanding in any number of ways. Um but she's also like she's not traditionally like Hollywood beautiful. Like mm-hmm. she looks like someone who you know and someone who you like and someone who's like a little weird. And I like that a lot about, I like like how resonant these people are in the same way. And this is another thing that's probably weirdly revealing. Like I loved kids as a, as a kid mm-hmm. because I was like, there's not an adult to be seen, which reminded me so much of my childhood where it was like, no one's in charge. It feels really dangerous there's no adults around here. These kids are just fending for themselves. And I was like, I, that is a reality I feel in a really big way. Mm-hmm. I love that. So in speaking of Go, Alex, if you had to explain to somebody what this movie is about, <laughs> which I know, not the easiest thing, not the easiest ask, uh, what is Go about? It, so it's, it's, there's three stories that are told back to back. One story is about, um, a young woman who's a who's a teenager who gets involved in uh, some drug shenanigans, buying and selling in order to make rent, and a number of uh, uh, things happen as a result that center around a a, a rave and a drug deal gone bad. Um, there is a story of a guy named Simon who, along with his friends, goes to Vegas uh, for a bachelor party and gets into a lot of just like a lot of inexcusable (laughs) trouble Um, um, because he just like because he leans so hard into being a straight white guy like that's basically like what happens is like he leans Mm -hmm. so hard into that that like everything it comes back at him in a Mm -hmm. really in in a really interesting way and then um, and then the third story is a story about these two um, uh, secretly gay actors 
who um who as a means of trying to get out of like a a drug i don't know like a, a drug arrest i think it's like a uh, possession charge yeah there's they they end up setting up the teenager that we meet in the first uh who's played by sarah Polly. what is her name i can't remember rana uh, Rana, that's it. By setting up by setting up Rana in a in a drug sting, that doesn't go exactly as planned, and they get cornered into what we think is going to be a um like a swinger proposition, and it ends up just being this police officer and his wife trying to get them into a um MLM marketing scheme. <laughs> Which and is this is so a teen good. movie that I loved. <laughs> And I and I realize and I realize like a lot of the things that I thought were smart and interesting as a whole in this movie. This movie is very uneven. It's very clunky um, in retrospect. But a lot of the things that I remember being brilliant are Sarah Polly's performance. She's so great as Rana. Mm-hmm. And then a uh, fucking God, what's his name? The drug dealer, um, uh, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, God, Tim- just remember him. Period. Ah, uh, he's forever my favorite dirtbag in any movie ever. Totally. And this was like him. This was such a proper introduction to what he would be for the rest of his career is exactly that. Just like the hottest dirtbag. And, and, but the thing that I remember so much is this, the tension of this Mm -hmm. scene in which we think that there's going to be a proposition to be involved in this sort of swinging relationship with this married couple. And it's actually them selling consolidated these, this like Amway like product, which is like much, I'm not saying that like swinging is sad, but like it's, it's, <laughs> it's what they end yeah. up proposing is way more awkward than the thing you think is going to be proposed. And I remember that feeling so brilliant as a kid. Um, so that's a thing that stands out my memory more than <laughs> almost anything else. Well, Irene and I, sort of had an ulterior motive for inviting you here tonight. He makes it sound sinister. It's not. No, I don't. She's right. Okay. Okay. You've looked around our place. Where do you think we got most of this stuff? Just guess. Sears? J.C. Penny. It's actually from Confederated Products. Almost everything in this house is from Confederated products, from the toilet paper to the to, to the candles to the ham. The, the wine. The wine, the wine, it, even that cologne you liked. You see, Confederated products is a multi-level direct wholesaling company, which means we don't just sell the products ourselves. No, sir, you read Bob. We recruit and manage teams that work under us. Now, Irene and I started eight months ago, and already we're pulling in 50000 a year in revenues. We're the number four distributor in Southern California. You got that one, babe. And by March, we might be number three. The whole aspect of that scene and that story specifically that I kept coming back to was if anyone could get me to sign up for an MLM, it would be Jane Krakowski. So. <laughs> totally. <Same>. Totally. <laughs> to- absolutely. And, and f- we just like the weirdest, most in- like William Fickner at his weirdest. He's yeah. so like, weird in this movie. He plays a lot of weirdos, but he's exceptionally weird here. Just walking around dick out. And, like, <laughs> fondling guys' abs. Right. <laughs> you can do your laundry on these abs. I love, oh my God, I love love it one of the things that like didn't age well in retrospect that you'd think i'd remember but it just shows how much times have changed for me at least and in my my viewing is breckenmeyer drops the n-word in this movie uh and his his rationale is that his like he you know i think he's, his mother's he's, mother is black so he yeah, claims totally. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
<laughs> totally. He says it right to, uh, so what what happened? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he says it just like so offhandedly in the car, and then Tay Diggs is there looking at him like, what? And like he doesn't like beat his ass or anything about it, but you can tell he's just like this idiot white boy. But okay, he also digs the hole deeper because he totally steals Tay Diggs' story about yes. getting a blowjob and accidentally unsticking a girl's con- uh, contact. So then it's like, oh, you asshole. And then he just is like, I'm just going to, I got a shovel. I'm just going to keep going. And then drops the (laughs) N word. Yeah. And and talking about, and so like talking about this being like Quentin Tarantino for teens, um, like a big thing Tarantino would do is he would write the N word for white characters. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and then just like, it would be accepted within the universe of the movie in a way where it just really feels like Quentin Tarantino going like, look what I have allowed myself to do. Um, and and in this, like, someone, t- I'm not excusing it by any means, like, there's no, no reason for Breckenmeyer to have dropped the N-word in this movie, but, like, the character is not likable at all. Uh-huh. And I do enjoy, I do enjoy that as, like, the least likable character next to Todd, the terrible drug dealer, um, <laughs> who's likable because because it's who it is. Uh, uh, th- that's who ends up saying it. And then there's also... Um, uh, there's that there's the F slur in this and I didn't realize I was like this movie had to have been written by a straight guy uh, when I watched a lot of the trans the initial transactions between the two actors once pl- um, um, who who plays them uh, uh, shoot I can't remember the They're, soap opera stars. Yeah, the soap opera. One stars. of them and is Jay I, Moore. The other one. Jay Moore, yeah, Jay I Moore. never remember his name. Jay I'm a Moore bad and party of fi- party of Scott five Wolf. Guys. Scott, Scott Wolf, Wolf there it is. I've got the IMDb up. <laughs> and, I, and I just, and I realized, and, and so first of all, I, re- I found out that John August, who wrote it, is is not, he's a, he's a gay man. But the, um, I just realized that they are so, they as actors are just so painfully straight. Yes, that, yes they are. That, that they turn the text straight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And it, it we, we talk a lot in the show about how, teen movies or time capsules of when they came out. And I have this really like awful feeling where as much as I hear Breckenmeyer say that, and I'm like, that's not acceptable and was never acceptable. And why did you do that? But the late nineties is also when like the popularity of Eminem started happening and white kids in the suburbs were like, it's cool for me to like rap now. I can say this because that's what's in the rap oh, songs. Totally. And everyone's like, no, you fucking cannot. But, but there were definitely those kids <laughs> that did. So I like look at this character and I'm like, oh, I hate you so much. But you're also not inaccurate. And that's so bad. You are a snapshot of a very specific suburban kid or a very specific white kid. And here's the thing. Like a lot of I, I remember being like 10 years old at the, around the turn of the millennium. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of people who suddenly were like, I listened to Dr. Dre because I got into him through Eminem and I'm going to say the N word because why not? Yes. And Eminem specifically says like, Hey, I'm not going to do that at all. Like granted he'll, he'll say every other slur in the under <laughs> right. the sun, but he doesn't <laughs> drop the N word. And I would like to say that I learned from Eminem and not to the white people I was around growing up that you're not supposed to say the N word. <laughs> yeah. So I took the right thing away. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, VJ, it's so interesting that you say that because I, I watched the movie through a very similar lens where I was like, I don't love what this character is doing, but this character is doing a lot of things. I saw people I went to high school with mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. like, it, it, like I, there was a whole 
coalition of kids in particular who live in my high school like Eminem had had happened like in the probably when I was like a sophomore or junior became like became well known mm-hmm. but like there was a group of kids that um that I went to high school with who loved Tupac and they were very they, of white kids I mean I went to school again in rural Maine white kids and there was a very similar you could have found that Breckenmeyer character in that group of kids yeah I mean, this is also the same year that we have 10 Things I Hate About You, where we have Mr. Morgan yelling at the white Rastafarian <laughs> kids from the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so, like, this is unfortunately a thing that uh-huh. white teens did. And as ugly and awful as it is, like, it, it is that time capsule of, like, look what we used to think was, like, kind of okay Mm -hmm. like that's wild as hell to me and i know the same thing goes with the f slur and harmony could speak on it better than i do one of her favorite uses of the f slur is in a tarantino movie and she uses it all the time okay here here's a wild thing about this uh this is a strange story also this movie has a trunk scene so uh hello tarantino Tarantino. (laughs) but uh no i actually started bartending again for the first time proper since moving to la and there's a wine we sell there um, and I'm going to misquote this, but the, the name of the wine is, uh, it's a rosé and I think it's called like, why, why do I have to be Mr. Pink? Mm-hmm. Like they, they <laughs> named their wine that, and I'm like, that's cute. I don't think you realize that the line that follows that in Revers- what, <laughs> Reservoir Dogs is, cause you're a faggot. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I love that line delivery. It is one of the funniest things to me. She says that to me at least once a week. Like I'll do something <laughs> oh. and then she just busts it out. And I'm like, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I did do this. Because and it's so perfect that Steve Buscemi. So like, uh, I, yeah, yeah it's. I, I, I'm not mad about it because I go, yeah, that's correct for a character like that to say. But like yeah. thematically, it's appropriate. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it, but at least it's funny. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that happens here because it fits the context. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually, I was surprised. I was surprised actually at how much of it fit the context and how a lot of it felt Again, like a lot of stuff I think feels clunky in this to me now in retrospect, but mm-hmm. like I um I don't know, I, th- I think it like it, it aged better than I expected it to, but there were also a lot of parts that felt very dated. Like again, having having Breckenmeyer's <laughs> Yeah. I had to like I like had to, <laughs> I doubled it did a double take. I was like, that's it's Breckenmeyer. Oh yeah, okay. He doesn't really talk about this role very often. I can understand why. <laughs> Now why don't you pull your stinky dinky out my ass? I'm just trying to make conversation. Fuck. There was a piece that came out a few years back um, on The Ringer called Don't Let It Go Away, The Frantic, Furious Making of a Cult Movie Classic. And they talk about how this movie sort of came to be. And there's some interesting things that I want to share because it is kind of mind-blowing to me. Mm. So... This movie is directed by Doug Lyman, who made Swingers, which was like a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, people really loved it. It kind of sparked the careers of Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. So, like, that's a- that's another cinema classic. I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Cinema, <laughs> Italian hand motions. So, so then they, they, you know, what what do I do next? And the next thing that was pitched to him is a movie we actually covered for one of our commentary tracks on the Patreon. Heartbreakers. Oh, God. Um, oh, yeah. I love that movie Heartbreak so much. so funny. Um, but yeah, he yeah. was pitched Heartbreakers, and it was like, here's a humongous studio comedy. Silver platter, here you go. And an interesting thing about Doug Lyman is that he's a director and not a screenwriter. 
And this is like late 90s is when we're starting to get like this new auteur wave where people are writing and directing their their own material. And mm-hmm. he's like, that's not me. I direct scripts that I get. So um, he he's like, okay, cool. I guess I'm gonna make this huge movie. And then his, like the producer calls him and is like, hey, I found this script. It fucking rules. I think you should you should do it. And he he gets it, and his his managers are basically like, okay, well, you can do this indie film, but if it doesn't do well, then like it's going to be really hard for you to do studio stuff in the future. But if you do this Heartbreakers movie, like no matter how good or bad it does, like you're kind of set because you made a studio comedy. Mm-hmm. And he said no to Heartbreakers and yes to go. And fortunately, like he has had a, a successful career where he's made things like Mr. and Mrs. Smith and like has done like humongous gangbuster numbers at the box office. But even today, tw- like over 20 years later, Go is still his favorite movie he's ever made. That's like that. a nicer, more successful story version of that Slumber Party Massacre story. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which didn't end, I think, as well career wise. But. Yeah, it's for, a very for, similar <laughs> risk. For those that don't know, the director of Slumber Party Massacre turned down editing ET to direct Slumber Party Massacre, which and, is and gave us all a gift as a result, and we appreciate it. Agreed. And she she claims that she doesn't regret her decision, and I like to believe she's telling the truth. That's great. <laughs> but um, here's what he had to say about why he chose to do this, and I love this. So unlike other marquee indie directors of the era, Lyman wasn't a writer, so he wasn't generating his own material. And it was the ethos driving Go's script that convinced him to pick up the project. I had a charmed youth in that I did a lot of crazy things and no one ever got hurt, he says. I had this belief that you have a get-out-of-jail-free card when you're 18, and I recognize there's a lot of white privilege connected to that get-out-of-jail-free card now because I wasn't as sensitive at the time because I only knew my own experience." But what I saw in Go was a story that was celebrating do crazy shit while you're young because you can get away with it when you're young. Totally. I wrote down, I wrote like three notes watching this movie because I remembered so much. And I just wrote, this movie is about bouncy teens. <laughs> I like <laughs> it's bouncy like, do you ever teens. See, do you ever see like, you ever see like a seven-year-old like fall in the ground and like <laughs> yes. their bodies like fucking made of rubber and they like literally like bounce? Like <laughs> this movie reminds me of like that energy that you have when you're 17. Oh yeah. I'm a staunch follower of the kids getting hurt Instagram page. Oh, so okay. <laughs> I'm very familiar with the resiliency and bouncy bounciness of children they're very malleable. yeah <laughs> literally i mean we see we see sarah Polly get hit by a car and just be fine and i watched my cousin a 13 year old girl it who was like built exactly like sarah Polly, get hit by a car backing out of a driveway and she was absolutely nonplussed because she needed to get to the beeper store to get her beeper fixed that's a story about the 90s in the north shore <laughs> For real though, like when 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 this all comes around, we have our three stories kind of resolve, and we get kind of our epilogue. And she comes rolling up to the grocery store after getting hit by a car. <laughs> I turn to BJ and go, "Yeah, no, that happened to me. I got hit by a car and then went back to work the next day totally. with a bad back, and my job totally. was to lift things." Yeah, absolutely, it's so resonant. It's crazy. <laughs> And I think that's like a a very real thing that we never see in movies is this idea of not even just resiliency, because, yeah, I do think there's a level of resiliency to it. But also, like, that's an action out of necessity. She has rent to pay. Yes. Like, yeah, she <laughs> she almost totally. didn't make rent this month. So, like, yeah, she, she can't afford that. She sure as shit can't afford the emergency room. Like, that's not 
that's not something she can yeah, pay well, she for. Literally, she literally almost got, I mean, and this is the thing, like not to turn this super serious, but that's an important thing. It's like, you know, all the people who throughout COVID, m- many, many of us just literally had to like risk our safety because we couldn't afford not to work. Mm-hmm. And like, that's mm-hmm. something that's so resonant. And like, we j- literally just saw her almost die Mm -hmm. several times to get her rent paid like she has to go back to work Mm -hmm. and that's something that absolutely resonates with the vast majority of my life agreed completely yeah this is kind of like how you see people who refuse to take ambulances and instead take an uber to the hospital Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's it's not like three grand out the gate. Yeah, this isn't this is the 1999 version of that horrible hellscape we live in. Absolutely, totally, totally, totally. That's yeah, and I, I I love that. I love the labor read on this, which like I haven't spent a lot of time with, but um, I just didn't do so many things as a kid because I was working, mm-hmm. like like clerks resonated with me in such a big way. Obviously, because it was written by like a grown-up boy um and it resonated (laughs) with me as a kid but it resonated i realized in retrospect it resonated because it's about two people at work which is like how i spent the majority of my time as a teenager Uh and again just like seeing teens work and then the stuff they do in between shifts we don't know anything about their school and we don't know anything about their parents like that was my lived experience (laughs) (laughs) that's that's so real though because everything that we know about these people like is based solely on those interactions. Like, I know exactly who Simon is based on how he's trying to get (laughs) Rana to take his shift. Like, he's (laughs) kind of a scumbag. It's This is also a Christmas movie, and I love any movie (gasps) that has, like, that tinge of Christmas. We talked about this a little bit during our Christmas in July episode for Night of the Comet, which is also set in Los Angeles. Los Angeles Christmas doesn't look like the way we normally see Christmas Mm -hmm. in movies. So it adds, like, this extra layer of something is off, you know? Like, it just, the world feels off because it's Christmas, there's mistletoe, there's holidays, but there's no snow. And it feels like that sucks out that, like, Christmas magic that exists. And instead, you're like, where am I? What is this wasteland? Well, yeah. It's like when you watch any Christmas movie, there's the freaking, it's like the end of that one chipmunk song where it's like, look, Dave, it's snowing. Like, the snow is Christmas magic sprinkling on you. And if it's hot out, it's like, oh, God, there's no magic. There's just sweat and suffering. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I do like I love that. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I totally forgot that this I mean, even though we're, there's so many signifiers of Christmas in this and from the party to to the, the Santa hat. But like that mm. is a thing. I typically end up in L.A. in December for what I don't even know the reason, but that's where I end up in one way or another. And I love just walking around the neighborhoods and seeing the absolutely out of context, like <laughs> colorful Christmas lights. And and <laughs> I love that for some reason. I mean, it's so novel to me being a, a Mainer who gets like buried in snow and that's the context for me. But like, yeah, you see a lot of that in this movie and that's that's great. I'm, and also so glad that you reminded me that uh, Night of the Comet is a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It is. It's wonderful. And I I don't know what it is, but because it is set around Christmas, like that adds the stress level of what Rana's going through. And like, you know that it's about to be the end of the month because Christmas is at the end of the month. And mm-hmm. there's even the line when we get to like the epilogue where it's like, what are y'all doing for New Year's? Yeah, so like, we're that. very much set in that world, which I love. 
And I love that it's also like Christmas for a lot of people sucks and is Mm -hmm. not a good time. And this movie's kind of not a good time, despite the fact that there's so many elements that feel like it should be a good time. Like going to a rave and like doing drugs. I mean, obviously, if you have issues with it, it's never a good time. But if it's like (laughs) a, a thing that you're doing casually, like that should be a good time. And it's not a fucking good time. And right. You know, poor Manny is getting left in an alley <laughs> while oh, he's, he's so cold, <laughs> taking way too much ecstasy, losing his mind. <laughs> oh my god! I can't imagine what it's like to come down off of ecstasy and then just wake up and be like, "Oh, I'm very cold and it's wet and I'm outside <laughs> in the trash." <laughs> this is bad for me. This is very bad. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, and also like that's another part of like the bouncy teens thing is like he took he took two of that you know whatever the like super pure ecstasy that they were sold being told only to take one or else two will fry your head, mm-hmm. and he's fine. And I'm not saying that does. I mean, we've we many of us know and have have lost you know people too young to having done too many drugs. But I also know there are any number of occasions where I should have died by way of my behaviors and intake and did not in ways where like, if I did the same now, I would be toast. So yeah, again, I was just like, yeah, this is, this is a teen, this is a teenage I I recognize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I have such a love for movies that follow what I like to describe the bad influence kids, which Mm. are all of the kids that your parents warned you about and this is a movie that kind of celebrates those kids. Like, it's not afraid to be like, hey, um, if your name is Simon and you go to Las Vegas and have a threesome, um, watch the fire, maybe. Like, don't burn your whole room down. <laughs> like, no amount of pussy is that important to, like, set a room on fire. Like, it's just not. Um, so you get, like, you know, great messages like that. But at the same time, like, you kind of are so proud of him for doing that. And you get, you get like shitty Brecken Meyer at the end who has like a black eye and is all fucked up. And he's like, you had sex with two women. And that's their (laughs) primary concern. And that's another thing where I was like, he asks it twice. That's another thing where I was like, yeah, I recognize this in a really big way. And just that whole scene where Simon ends up having that threesome. And it's like, there's just something about it. Like it's, it's kind of sad. Like that girl lights her, her Kleenex on fire. Like they're not they're It's, it's between three very not bright people. And <laughs> I, again, I was like, I love like none of this feels glorified. It feels like glorified because it'd be like, it'd be like, t- like titillating one way or another to put on screen. But like none of these people are super aspirational. And I really enjoyed that as well. You're just like, <laughs> no, okay. If that's yeah. like the price you pay for a threesome, is to be any one of these three people in this situation. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And maybe it's just because Simon has has an accent like this, but so much of this movie feels like, you know, this is enjoyable, but this is also like a bad time in the way that something like a train spotting is, where it's just people who are bad people making bad decisions, getting into weird misadventures. And Simon got like plucked out of train spotting and now he's trying to live out like his Magnum PI American dreams by doing all of the worst things he could do because he saw it on TV. Yeah, totally. I think, yeah, his, his, is he Scottish? I think he's Scottish. His Scottish accent doesn't help his case. (laughs) Helps him get (laughs) laid though, which is true to life. I bet. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we love accents, don't we? <laughs> we love accents, and they're also their bridesmaids in a wedding, so you know that they're a little lit. Like, oh, I've, we, some of my saddest sex in my life has been <laughs> wet, wedding wedding hookups. Like, wedding hookups are the worst. They're the you know, worst. <laughs> Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn made it seem much more glamorous than sad. Totally. It is not. It is, it's exactly the opposite. On the glamorous to sad spectrum, it's in my experience, it's usually much more in the sad spectrum. Because <laughs> then you're like, well, are we going to go to the brunch thing? Uh, no? Okay, well. <laughs> One of cool. my favorite wedding experiences of all time, and I don't know if she listens to the show, so I'm not going to say her name, but I love you. You know who you are. One of my <laughs> friends uh, saved herself for marriage, and we all knew and so we go to this wedding we have a great time and then the next morning we're all in like the hotel breakfast nook eating free continental breakfast and she comes down and like it's one thing when like when we got married no one was having that like what'd you do on your wedding night like because they know we fuck like the jig is up they got it but with, my, <laughs> but with my friend, we knew she lost her virginity that night. So, like, she comes down in her little, like, Mrs. robe, and we're all just kind of staring at her like, eh. <laughs> and she's like, shut the fuck up, all of you. And we're like, how was it? Stop talking. Like, stop oh asking God. me these questions. But also, like, your family knows this, too. So, like, yeah. you're coming down to breakfast 100%. Everyone in this room knows that you fucked last night. That's wild. That's, <laughs> like... like the worst case scenario. <laughs> there was also a great situation when they checked into the, we all checked into the hotel and the bridal suite was right next to the room that was assigned for her parents. And she's like, absolutely not. That's not happening. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Which I love so much. Oh God. Weddings. So you have uh. silly wedding things. I'm sitting here going to like my family things where it's like pay a dollar and you get a tiny shot of apple pucker and all the men in the room can dance with the bride. And I was like, I don't Holy like crap. this. I went to my God. I also went to that at least one or two of those weddings. I, my aunt April and uncle Phil, I'm going to call them up by name. These fuckers. They, they got married. <laughs> they got me. I love them so much, but they got married in a, um, in like a Grange hall, like that sort of thing. It was like, everything mm-hmm. was wood paneled. Like it was like, it was exactly what you just described. Everything was yes. wood paneled. <laughs> and I caught the thing that goes around the leg. Oh, the garter. Oh, the garter. Did you I wear was, it on your head? Because I think that's what no, you're supposed to do. I was eight years old, and I had to put it. <laughs> I had to put it on my aunt April. I had to put oh, it no! on her leg. You had to crawl under is, the dress. Oh yeah, and that was absolutely burned into my memory for the rest of my days. Oh no. <laughs> You see, I, I one of the first times I had alcohol was one of those like lineups where you basically are like auctioning off for a dollar a privilege to dance with the bride and I remember I was coaxed into it by one of my aunts of going like but look how cute your cousin is don't you want to dance with her oh my god oh which my like god. I was like 12 do you hear the words that you just said like she oh looks beautiful god. doesn't she I'm like I'm like 12 and fat yeah. and wearing like a bad Hawaiian button up because I don't own nice shirts why is this okay <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, that that aside resonates so hard in that like my aunt Peggy used to buy me clothes from the husky section of the bugle boy catalog. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, she's like, it's got a lot of room for your seat. <laughs> 
Like. <laughs> the bugle boy section and the big dog t-shirts oh, like big dog. Oh. the the fat kid wardrobe of the 90s hey my best friend through most of school owned a collection of big dog shirts that were all movie parodies oh my god that's so good like goodfellas like that sort of thing oh like- goodfellas star wars i don't remember all of them but they i i'm not even positive he'd seen all the movies he had there were definitely for. pulp fiction big definitely. dog shirts yes because uh the kid who was next to me alphabetically all throughout like elementary and junior high had one and I just remember him getting in trouble one day because it's the dogs, like, you know, using guns. And it's the famous pose of Travolta mm-hmm. and, and Jackson. And the school was like, you can't wear that. There's guns on it. This is immediately oh after Columbine. That can't happen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Also, yeah, we're 1999. Ghost coming out during fucking Columbine year. Yeah, absolutely. Yikes. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. 99 is... Uh, Oh, God, what a year. <laughs> 99 feels like 2016 does in that. Yeah. It's like 99, yeah. like 2001, 2016. They all feel like it was like, they're like, hey, everything's different for everyone now. And you're like, for particularly for white people who felt safe in a particular way for a long time. <laughs> and, and yeah, it feels like just like a paradigm shifting time. Yeah, it's, and that's kind of one of the, my favorite things about when we do this show is we get to look at stuff that like, looks absolutely correct like we remember it and everything makes sense but it is such a different world but also the same and it's it's so weird to look at this movie and how how it's exactly like i remember this period being uh, sort of because i was obviously like eight years old when this came out so i mean i wasn't necessarily in the thick of it by the time i got to high school though like this was kind of how things sort of were or how people wanted them to be and oh man, the, the the hot mess express for for white kids in in my uh, coming up, like I was specifically straight edge because I did not want to be a hot mess like these people. And BJ gives me shit. He just goes, "Well, when you're in a high school, you can't really be straight edge. That doesn't mean anything." I'm like, "Excuse me, when everyone <laughs> in your high school is either drunk or high at all times, it does mean something." Yes. Yeah, and I'm totally. not anymore. Now I'm a bartender, so it's like that. That once I met actual straight edge people, they were jerks, and I decided oh, I don't want to do this. Worst, like yeah, the worst. I had like a fi- like I did like a bunch of st- it's so inappropriately again because I was working and around like elder teenagers. I did a lot of stuff to 14, and then I didn't do anything to like 18 as straight edge. Although you know, if you're not if you're not now, you never were or whatever whatever mm-hmm. whatever that slogan is. <laughs> I didn't pay attention to it, and I was gonna get a straight edge back tattoo that was like this big and it's it's like i just described like a like a sketchbook size tattoo with my hands it's like a hubcap size it's huge huge on my back and the guy i can't believe it in retrospect the tattoo artist was like i could take three hundred dollars right now which is how much a tattoo cost at that time somehow i could take three (laughs) hundred dollars right now but like man i can't tell you how many times i'm at a bar and someone comes in with a straight edge tattoo and drinks he's like save it, save your money, come back in a year if you want it. And I was not in a year. Yeah. What an angel. Thank, yeah, thanks, Jason, <laughs> that, the tattoo that, guy. That's that's a very kind tattoo artist. See, the thing is, I love like a good bartender, a good tattoo artist, like the kind of people who are sort of the, the elder statesman of like the weird, slightly dangerous yes. world that this film exists in, where it's like, yes. that's the person you want to trust and your your fate is in their hands. Yes. And there's not one of those people in this movie. <laughs> no, no. In in theory, Oliphant should be that. 
He mm-hmm. should be like in a in a lesser movie, he would have a conscience and direct people a little bit, and he does not, and that's great. The version of that character is his character in The Girl Next Door. Like he's playing the same character he's doing in Go, but with a little bit of a backbone and a little bit of a conscience. He's, he's got principles. Yeah, he has like a moral compass that we can actually see versus in Go, Timothy Oliphant is just like, peak charming dickhead which is my favorite version of timothy oliphant Mm -hmm. outside of like this feels out of character santa clarita diet but i love it because of how out of character it feels like i'm so perplexed by him because he's so good at playing such scumbags but i know that he's a wonderful human (laughs) yeah yeah he seems he seems very sweet but he also seems at home in these in these characters somehow so what do you have against the family circus okay you sit down and read your paper, and you're enjoying your entire two-page comic spread, right? And then there's the family fucking circus, bottom right-hand corner, just waiting to suck. And that's the last thing you read, so it spoils everything you read before. You could just not read it. I hate it, yet I'm uncontrollably drawn to it. The things I didn't quite recall in this movie, although I remember the scenes, but I don't, I didn't remember the context or energy is like the, his like sexual menace up front is really interesting. Like yeah. to oh, get, yeah. to get Sarah Polly, to get Rana to, um, to show herself as like being whatever, like on the level for buying drugs. He has her like lift her shirt and turn around, but he's showing it's really to show that like, she's not wearing a wire, but also there's like this mm-hmm. weird, like menacing, element to it because like the music goes way up which i understand Mm -hmm. again for the context but like there is a menace that's really interesting about his character for someone who becomes likable and relatable because he hates family circus like the rest of us (laughs) (laughs) oh god we haven't even talked about katie holmes yet have we katie holmes is in this movie yes we haven't even talked about her baby katie holmes baby melissa mccarthy baby oh yeah everybody baby breckenmeyer it's crazy Yeah, this movie is like the starting ground for so many people that would become just massive superstars because Katie Holmes shot this like after she shot the pilot for Dawson's Creek. (gasps) So she hadn't blown up yet. So they got her right at the cusp of when she was ground level. And in talking about Sarah Polly too, um, Sarah Polly is is a filmmaker now and. The director was talking about meeting her and like knowing from Jump Street, this is who I want. Like she's perfect. And she was already disillusioned with Hollywood and is like, no, I'm done. And if people don't know, Sarah Polly is now one of the most like outspoken women directors talking about like how fucked the system is and how everything needs to change. Like she's incredibly critical. Mm. And uh, if it wasn't her, it was going to be Christina Ricci, which I think is also mm-hmm. really interesting for 1999 because that's like a really nice sweet spot in her career as well. But I, totally. I, I guess just, also I Reese Witherspoon was considered as well, which is yes. like, which, and it's a really funny trio of very specific personalities um, yeah. that were considered for this role. And, and that also brings into that, knowing that this focuses on Sarah Polly and again like you said it's like was like a was a a birthplace of many many careers or or helped keep people on specific trajectories um 
I learned only now for watching this that like this movie was initially just supposed to be a short about about Rana's character. Yeah. And which makes so much sense because like that feels like she feels like the most fully formed character with like the most fully formed whatever. And then they were like, well, to stretch this out, we need a couple more stories. And so they did that. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that that made a lot more sense watching this is like it being a vehicle specifically for Sarah Polly, who. Everyone in this movie is great, but she's a fucking genius, and I love. Oh, I definitely love, love seeing her shine. <laughs> yeah, um, I really haven't seen her in too many things. The one I know her best for is Dawn of the Dead, which is like five years later or so. Um, yeah. And and there's really good side characters in this movie. Obviously, Timothy Oliphant's great. Obviously, Tay Diggs is wonderful. Um, like th- there's there's cool other people, but she really is like the anchor of this entire movie, and you can tell that like the movie starts focusing on her and it ends focusing on her, and she really is like the central piece of this. And I, if it wasn't Sarah Polly, I could I could buy Christina Ricci. I think she would fit this. I don't know if Reese Witherspoon has it in her to do this mm-hmm. character properly, but I would in a parallel universe I would watch that movie. I would lament totally. yeah, that this yeah. version wouldn't exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't know that Reese could have done it in yeah. this way. I think there's there's an inherent sweetness about Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. That, that like, I think I, I, I don't know if any of us would be able to disassociate with because, like, her mm-hmm. face is just so sweet and <laughs> yes. so cute, which can add, like, really nice juxtaposition when you have something like an election where she's kind of a scumbag, but like a charming one. Mm-hmm. Um, but whereas this, like Rana is a character that is just fucking over it. Yeah. 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 She's just, oh my God, I love she her. even just her face, the way it sits looks exhausted and jaded. And she's like 18. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, don't get me wrong. I was definitely jaded and tired of things when I was 18. And now that I've gotten this far, I, I can see how far I can sink and be exhausted by people in life. So when you're that age, when you're 18, that is the most fed up you have ever been. You've still got a long way to go before you get even more fed up. But oh, <laughs> you're just the most over shit possible when you're that age. Especially when you have to work on Christmas yeah, like 14 hours straight and then another shift on top of it. Yeah. Oh, God. So from this article, something that I also wanted to bring up that I love is something the editor had to say about this. Um, Stephen Miraconi really loved working on this movie, which it always warms my heart when people do these retrospectives. And it's like, nope, this was a great experience. Everything was awesome because I think too often we hear about just like horror stories about beloved movies and then it ruins it forever. <laughs> um, and in this one, he's like, you know, there's a scrappiness to go that could only have been generated by a group of people who much like the movie's characters often found themselves in situations where they were in over their heads. As the editor says, one of the things I like about Go is that it's a movie about idiots that's made by a bunch of goofballs, just a bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> Good use of words. <laughs> that is a great use of words. Yeah, it, I don't know. The energy, the ener- it, feels, it feels like everyone was on a similar page, which is really nice. What, one, thing that, one thing that struck me, uh, Harmony, about what you were saying with regard to like if the Reese Witherspoon movie existed, you know, we would appreciate it, but bemoan the fact that this one didn't exist is, is it turns out in this, j- jumping onto what you were saying, BJ, about um, 
Polly's outspokenness is she wrote an op-ed, I think a, a handful of years ago for the times about specifically how she didn't end up acting a lot because of her experiences with Harvey Weinstein. So wow. there were, you know, very, very like many, very sort of keyed into the, that, that me too moment specifically in the, the, the Weinstein week, but also just, you know, it's, I just think about how absolutely fucking tragic it is. How many performances we never saw from people, um, like Polly who like we could have had a lot more Polly if mm-hmm. if if it wasn't for that and that's just you know obviously disgusting but but worth noting that there are a lot of performances that we didn't get to see because of that specific circumstance yeah, yeah. it's it's something that i i grapple with a lot when i think about sort of this retrospective that we've been having just in general with everything between like me too and free britney and this kind mm-hmm. of reckoning of just how atrocious we've treated women in the entertainment industry and and you know marginalized people and just ha- and, you know times up including in that as well like these just big social movements and how none of this is new it was all stuff that people were saying but we're mm-hmm. finally at the point where people are willing to make the space to have those conversations and obviously very very long overdue <laughs> but you really bring up a good point because I think about the people like the Sarah Polly's of like, what did we, what did we miss out on? And I also think about uh, like the actress, Dana Goodman, who plays Carrie Mm. in the house bunny, who we did not bring up in the episode because we felt that it might be a little bit too intense, but Dana Goodman's one of the people who first outed Louis Mm CK and she was Mm. this budding, incredible comedic actress. And she has like three movies to her name because of it, because Mm she spoke out against at the time, like one of the most powerful people. Like she's not even the one who brought him down. Like she's the one who kind of kicked it off. Mm -hmm. And it's this thing where I have so much pride that they were able to speak out, that they were able to, you know, enact this change. But I'm so fucking mad that not only did they not, you know, because obviously nobody deserves that, that treatment. Like that's abhorrent, but I think that's a given. But the fact that, they were denied the ability to continue to create and like bring these brilliant performances that have impacted so many people. Mm-hmm. And that was just taken. Yeah. So like uh, that sounds like very trivial and surface and I'm not in any way trying to diminish what they went through. Cause that is of course the worst part about it. But Sarah Polly absolutely made an impact on, I think a lot of people by being in this movie and the fact that, she was denied the ability to continue that work is so gross to me. <laughs> like it's so yeah, fucking totally. frustrating. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. And it's a thing. It's, it's so interesting because we, we rarely think and understandably so, but like we rarely consider um, what's signified by the absence of something. And, and it's one mm-hmm. of those things because like you don't see the, <laughs> see the absence as being a signal of something, but like mm-hmm. that's like very, that's very much a thing that, um, you know, I, I think about with a handful, a handful of actors and actresses who I know, like, just went underground in one way or another, because that was the only option. Yeah, um, actually, probably my favorite movie from this just absolute landmark year in cinema is The Mummy. Oh, and yeah. The same thing even happened to Brendan Fraser, who is just now yes. bouncing back after a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't yeah. think people really... I think I still think people don't really know that that he mm-hmm. had a whole like a uh, harassment assault um like blacklisted experience that lasted for mm-hmm. years and years. Yeah. Mhm. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think people realize that either, which is also you know, and he's also dealing with the fact that he was kind of on his own with everything. Like the the one blessing of me too is that there was solidarity because right. there were so many people that were able to unite and be together, but then you have the people like Brendan Fraser and to some extent like people like Terry Crews mm-hmm. who were kind of on their own. Right. And that really really sucks and I have the the utmost of empathy and and sadness for what they went through but i'm so happy that brendan fraser is getting this kind of renaissance i love it so much i want to give him a hug i love him so much yeah i mean it was also just announced that he's going to be in a scorsese movie which is everything i've ever wanted which is (laughs) so wild and i want i want him to just steal it i want this to be like his uncut gems revival yeah, <laughs> like this, this is his moment where it's like, that's right. Brendan Fraser can do like ridiculously talented dramatic acting. I believe in him. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I love it so very much. And I, I love that this is a movie that you brought because as we were watching it, Harmony even made the comment of like, is this a movie that if Alex had not brought this to you that you would have considered for the show? And I was like, you know, maybe. On like year three, yeah, I was like maybe yeah, on a like long year enough timeline, three, anything will come up. But yeah, it's probably not an immediate go-to. I bet. No, apparently not. Yeah, <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't something that I really thought of, and it wasn't until like you said it, and I was like, "That's actually kind of brilliant because it is this movie that I think has kind of gotten forgotten, doesn't have quite the cult revival that something like a Jawbreaker has." Mm-hmm. But this movie really is capturing a very specific point of that late 90s. And I love that it's talking about like rave culture, which was the hotness for like three years Mm -hmm. and now has turned into like EDM. But like EDM fests do not feel like raves. Like they're they're similar in that like the music's very bass heavy and everyone's on Molly or ecstasy and there's a lot of glowing things. But like the energy is really different. I don't know how else to. I don't know how to describe it other than like it just doesn't feel the same. I mean, I've not been to a rave or an EDM concert, but I'd imagine it's because it's been commodified now. It's not like this dingy thing that a bunch of kids doing drugs are doing in like a basement or a warehouse. It it's more of like a commercialized thing and experience now. Yeah, I think right. that that's. I think that that's true. And I've been. I have not. So I've not been to any of like like the the large format, like the like hundred thousand people EDM shows. Like, mm-hmm. I think that what is it, Electric Daisy? The, there's one in. There's one in. Yeah, Electric Daisy. There's one in Vegas that I've been in Vegas twice for for work while it was happening, and I've been like around people who are going to it. And that versus like the shows that we'd go to when I was a kid that we just weren't supposed to go to that like felt highly illegal, <laughs> that um, um, felt like sticky and dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there it feels it feels on some level like the ones that are happening out. Not to undermine it, I mean, I, there's still like extraordinarily vibrant culture within the music, etc. But like it feels a little bit like a trade show for music. Whereas, <laughs> whereas these the the things that I remember kind of like being represented on screen in this movie. Again, we were very late. Like Manchester had happened a decade before when <laughs> when you know like when we were doing it. But it there was there was certainly a seediness and a danger outside of just the potential that you could. OD that I, it that I felt in a big way that felt like liberating um, in a way that I don't know if it was really liberating as much as just like my adrenaline was going in a really intense way. 
No, but I think there is something to that, honestly. And and in the way that this movie functions where it's undoing a lot of what had been established as like teen movie tropes. And it's so far off the beaten path. I think that's why a lot of people either aren't noticing it or don't grapple with it the way that they do a lot of these other subversive teen movies from this year, even like Mm -hmm. this era, but also specifically this year where you saw a lot of these things become cult classics. And this one's kind of, uh, it's like a bubbling under cult classic from my understanding. I think this one is still really edgy for a lot of people because it feels very real. Like Jawbreaker is one of my favorite movies of all time. That movie does not feel real to me. It's a cartoon. It feels, yeah, it's (laughs) camp. It's high camp. Darren Stein's a fucking genius, but Mm. yeah, it's a cartoon. Go feels very real. Go feels like the, the weekend that my friends are telling me about after I haven't seen them. And they're like, you're not going to believe what <laughs> happened this weekend. And then they tell me the story and I'm like, that's crazy. I believe every word that yes. you just said because that sounds exactly like the kind of trouble you would get into. Totally. Yeah, there's, there's, it's almost visceral in how sincere it is. It feels yeah. like we just covered, I mean, this is this is such a fucking ridiculous comparison, but I I feel like there are similarities as we just covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the for the show. And you know how like there's like a quasi there is there is so much artifice in this movie, there isn't this feel, but like there's a quasi like documentary realism to that movie. Is like mm-hmm. this movie does feel like the kids are not fantastic in any way. Like the kids are like no. dirty and they work and one kid almost ODs behind a trash can uh, behind a porn, you know, a porn theater turned dance <laughs> center for a night. And um um yeah, like it it kind of has that realness in a way that like I feel like it's it's limiting its audience. Like there's no, it's speaking to people who have like similar experiences, but it, it doesn't rope in anyone from an aspirational nature. Like there's no aspiration in this movie. And so <laughs> yeah. you shut off half of your potential cult audience as a result. Whereas like, I think like um, Jawbreaker and But I'm, but I'm a Teenager, um, they they have both the like resonant actual experience of living, you know, pretty specific experiences of the people in the movies and also are like high camp and high fantasy. And so you have multiple potential audiences for the both of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you're, you're absolutely right is that there's nothing triumphant feeling about this movie. The triumph is that you made it through the night and now you're having breakfast at a diner with Timothy Oliphant. Totally. Like, that's Bonus. your reward for getting through this night. <laughs> and that sounds a lot more glamorous than it actually is in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Having like a heady conversation about Christmas presents in the, the comic section. You know what I like best about Christmas? The surprises. I mean, it's like you get this box and you're sure you know what's inside of it. You know, you shake it, you wait, you're totally convinced you have it pegged. No doubt in your mind. But then you open it up and it's completely different. You know, wow, bang, surprise. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you and me here, you know? I'm not saying it's anything it's not. It's just, come on, this time yesterday, who would have thunk it? And that's like, I think that that's that when I said that, like it has that flavor of clerks. Like, I think that that's another thing that stood out when I saw it initially is like, the, you know, and I don't mean to give these movies shit because they have their place or whatever, but like, 
the American Pie movies are exclusively about fucking, and yes, and like definitely. I love. Don't get me wrong, like I loved fucking as a teenager, but like <laughs> that was such a slim part of my overall experience. Like so much of my experience was just talking to people, and yeah. this movie's dialogue heavy. Like all of these are like multi- multiple part conversations with like various people exposing things about them in ways that I don't remember movies targeted towards me doing. Yeah, I agree completely. Some of like this, the Tarantino for teens really is accurate. Like I just, she said that when we were watching it and I was like, save that. It's brilliant. It's so um, good. <laughs> because like everyone is communicating in this movie, even in scenes where like I think about when Scott Wolf and, and Jay Moore are in the, the cop car about to, you know, set up this this bust on on Rana, Simon, but you know, it ends up being Rana. And they're having the 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 discussion of like, I think my girl's been cheating on me because they don't want to out themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're having an argument without having an argument. And I love that because that is the passive aggressive yeah. way <laughs> that teenagers deal with their problems and by deal with it like don't deal with their problems. And we do it today. Like People make very passive aggressive like Instagram story updates. Are you, are like, you subtweeting me? Are you subtweeting me? Yes. Like they're subtweeting each other in front of each other's faces, and it's amazing. In front of a cop. It's also yeah, in front of a cop. Fasc- <laughs> it's also fascinating, and there's there's so much like necessary and important commentary that can happen by way of how much like gay men's experiences were centered in cinema starting whenever they started to show up on screen through whenever. But the fact mm-hmm. that like gay men were the only romantic interests in this movie set like directed at teens was really interesting. Like, like they, it wasn't like they were like, and she's a sassy lesbian. And like, she's like super hot. And like all the guys who watch this movie are going to want to see her in one way or another. (laughs) And that's how we're going to pull them in. They're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You get Jay Moore with a middle part. (laughs) Exactly. You get Jay Moore from one of the worst seasons of Saturday night live. And he's, (laughs) and he's the gay interest in this movie. And again, like they straight it up so hard that it's, it's, that's the, one of the messiest elements. Like they actually Mm -hmm. straighten the text of the script. But Uh I think, um, that's a fascinating choice. Like it's a fascinating choice to target a movie again to this felt a little heavier. I mean, I don't know who, which, what they were dealing with, with demographics and gender when they made this movie, but it feels like it's at least making a plea to boys. And again, like the only romantic pairing in the movie is is two gay guys in their mid twenties. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking about because I agree with you that the the dialogue is very sh- like straighted up between so the macho. two of them. It's so macho, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm also thinking about the late '90s where like. You know, this is when Will and Grace is becoming part of the yeah. uh, the normal conversation. And the big thing was, like, not being like Jack. Like, I am a gay man, and I'm not like Jack. Totally. And this is when we start getting into a, a problem that we still have in the community of, like, the the no fats, no femmes sort mm-hmm. of thing, where we did get a lot of gay guys that were trying to, like, 
pass as straight. And also, these are gay men in Hollywood, which is still, as much as people want to believe it's not, still pretty fucking unforgiving mm-hmm. uh, to gay men. Mm-hmm. And they're in so- they're in soap operas where they're supposed right. to be these like dashing men that all women are interested they're in. They're heartthrobs. Yeah, they're, they're heartthrobs. They're McSteamy types. Yeah. So I I can understand at the same time, like as much as part of me wants to be like, mm, you straighted the shit out of this. Part of me is like, yeah, but there's a read yeah. to be made here about the the late 90s and being a gay man in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So there's just so many things about this movie that I I think are so ahead of its time while at the same time perfectly capturing what that t- that time was in ways that a lot of teen movies weren't. Also and, like and to, to just to talk about like lessons from this movie, I went to a strip club once and um and I was I got a lap dance at a strip club and the stripper was like you can touch me. Oh, and I was like, no, 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 no. I have seen, <laughs> I have seen go. <laughs> In my head, I was like, I know that that only ends badly for everyone. So I'm just going to respectfully <laughs> keep my hands where they are. That was my primary takeaway from this movie that has stuck with me <laughs> at least through a part of my twenties. <laughs> I I have not been to a strip club for a hot sec, but. Oh man, I I have found that strippers are much more lenient about rules when they're giving a lap dance to a woman. And they're like, "Oh, you can totally touch me. I don't let men touch me, but it's fine if you do it." And I was like, "Well, then." <laughs> I, I'm such like a I'm such like a, a like a New England Calvinist that I'm like, "Maybe I can, but a god that I don't believe in is watching me right now and like I'm just going to respect the rules." <laughs> I don't want to. I don't oh, want to have to so shoot bad. anyone in the arm or get shot myself, as happens in this movie. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> just gonna skedaddle. I do. I do love. I and we said it a little bit up front is like I do love how much of Simon's trouble just comes from leaning into thinking he can do anything he wants. I do love. Mm-hmm. I do love that a whole lot. Like usually, um, right down to the fact that like at the end we are led to. Although like I will tell you, I know a little bit about guns and that that. I think it was like a snub nose 38 that they were putting up against his arm would have vaporized his arm off of his body. <laughs> um, so, and he responded pretty cavalierly when he got shot with it. So I, you know, whatever, a little Hollywood stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but um, I do love that even in the end, like he doesn't get away with his shit. Like a lot of guys, like mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller's a douchebag who like just fucking gets away with being a douchebag. I love, and I yeah. love Ferris Bueller, but like he gets away with all of his stuff and you're just like, no, oh, Ferris, he's getting away. Not Simon. He got shot in the arm. Good. <laughs> I, I honestly, I really love that whole scene too, where he's just sitting there and like Katie Holmes is the voice of reason, but Simon's like, no, it's okay. You can shoot me. No, it's cool. No, it's cool. Like, seriously. Just like right there. Right there. Like, it'll be fine. I've, like, he's so okay with it. I've earned this. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I, I deserve this. It's fine. He has the same energy of that one senior who would do anything for the funny. It's like, I'm going to jump off the mezzanine in the library. Oh, yeah. Why? I don't know. Totally. Seems like a good idea. Like, that's Simon. <laughs> like, that is the energy that he has. That paired with like, 
real gross toxic masculinity of like, I'm just here to fuck. And you're like, <laughs> I understand exactly what I'm getting out of you. You are pure id. Also, I don't think Simon knows how much a gunshot wound hurts yet. He's very naive. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this is, that's not fleshy. There's a lot of bone right behind what you're pointing at. So yeah. good luck. He's, he's like, it's fine. It'll be a cool story. And I'm like, dude, no, I promise you, if that's what you're thinking, it's not going to be a cool story. You're not writing ever again, but all right, cool. <laughs> you're not writing the story down yeah our guy our guy of that caliber <laughs> uh, his name was flash and he uh yeah he was exact he had exactly had that same exact energy as that as that simon character and if he's still alive today i'd be shocked to find out <laughs> uh i would say who ours is but he is no longer with us but he actually died in like a very kind of cavalier way um, he was one of like the the rescue firefighters. They made a movie oh. about it a couple years ago. What of like the the nine firefighters in I think Colorado. Oh yeah, yeah. He was one of them. Oh. Um, he he moved out there and became a firefighter. But in high school, like he was that kid who like hung out way too much at the skate park and was like, hey, you want to see something crazy? And like would do something crazy. Um, so I'm glad to say that when he did pass, it was not in vain. Like he wasn't being a dumb yeah. fuck. He was actually doing something kind of honorable. I'm glad um, like when those people find a place to put that energy because like it's, yeah, that's, that's great. Cause it goes one way or the other. It's either, it's either triumphant or sad. Yeah. Mm. Very. Yeah. There's really no middle ground for that. <laughs> like they don't just resign to being like, I sell real estate yeah, exactly. now. Like that's not how that works. Exactly. I'm a middle manager. <laughs> great. <laughs> Well, before we wrap things up, are there anything else like pressing topics that anyone wants to talk about with this movie? I just, I don't know. I really, I really, really appreciated. I don't think I would have taken this opportunity to revisit this movie um, without some direction. And I'm, I'm really grateful to this movie. I'm grateful to like all the people who are in it and to the, you know, to the writer and director, like it gave me it gave me like a mirror into myself and BJ, this is something that I know that you talk about. We, we've talked about on Twitter and is that a lot of times people will write off the things that were like influential to them in their teens. Cause they feel frivolous in one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. but that's really where you're taking shape in a lot of ways. And it's important to explore all those things. Like it's important to explore the fact that the album I listened to more than any other album was use your illusion one and two in high school. Like it's important to (laughs) explore these things, even though they're not necessarily glamorous and like, I'm grateful for the gems that snuck through. And this was very much one of those gems. And I appreciate everyone who was involved for putting it into my life. That's really beautiful. It is. You're, you're, Alex, you're the best, and also uh, I'd like to say that I religiously listened to User Illusion 1 and 2 as well, and the year was like 2007. Whoa, okay, cool. <laughs> um, I also was there on opening day and bought Chinese Democracy Amazing. because Axl Rose taught me how to sing, oh. uh, not necessarily in the best way, oh, but... Totally. I love, God, I, with all those slanderous things I was saying about Axl up front comes from fucking loving Guns N' Roses. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're a fucking really good band for like four albums. Yeah, they sure were. They sure were. I listened to Deja Attendu by Brand New and then Jesse Lacey turned out to be a pest. Oh, and cute. that's the album I used to help me get through my own experiences. So I unpack that in therapy. I feel like somebody out there who listens to the show probably is keeping a tally somewhere of all of the things I have referenced that I go to therapy for. 
Because oh uh, it's a lot of them. You can fill a bingo card. It's yeah, like you can fill a bingo card. It's arguable that that Axel, through his various shenanigans, is sent at least one of his bandmates to like a mental ward for years, and maybe his demise. So yeah, I mean, like our our faves often, as we realize, like if you have mm-hmm. if you have the gravity and personality to become infamous, there's a very strong chance. Uh, you've done some bad shit and we all have yeah. to, we all have to untangle what that means for having been subscribers to you in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, sure. Axel, I don't want to just turn this into a guns and roses podcast, <laughs> but Axel Rose also would drop the N word casually, but he's like, but Slash is in the band and he's black. It's cool. I can say the F slur because my favorite singers are Freddie Mercury and Elton John. And also I uh, really like Charles Manson a lot. That was- and it's like, <laughs> No, no, Axel. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> Axel just would randomly leap off the stage and beat the shit out of fans. Like, yeah, okay. I will. <laughs> not, say, not the best dude. It's so interesting because, like, I and uh, yeah, again, this isn't like an, this isn't an Axel celebration, but like Axel singing at Freddie Mercury's um, memorial mm-hmm. was like how I learned about AIDS. Like, I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh wait, they were friends. Oh wait, Queen is cool. Oh wait, this is what was happening with Queen. Oh, I'm into Queen. Thanks, Axel. no but for real like those are the weird connections you make about like we talked about it earlier when i was like yeah eminem taught me not to say the n-word i I was like eight years old so i hadn't been using it but then i learned going forward don't use it and so it was a really good experience and yeah maybe i spent a lot of money to get floor tickets to see guns and roses when slash rejoined the band with duff okay fine but i owed it to 15 year old me because you can't write that stuff off as frivolous necessarily like there, it matters even if you don't want it to Amazing. or if it's complicated mm-hmm. completely right like the amount of things that i have bought as an adult in honor of like 15 16 year old me immeasurable and that is an act of self-care i like to believe yeah. <laughs> yes yes absolutely so harmony the time has come Go is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? <laughs> or I guess in this instance, like, are you saying anything into the wire that you're wearing? <laughs> the one that's dangerously close to my ball sack? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, this movie gets a, it's a wonderful yes. I would put this... No, Grant, it's like a third-tier Christmas movie. If you want to understand how the tier system of Christmas movies work, go listen to our Night at the Comets episode. But it's not a very Christmassy Christmas movie, but it is a Christmas movie. And I would I would throw this in there as like a really good dark horse contender for that. Mm-hmm. But I would also just watch it year round. This movie is fun, extremely lurid. Uh, I like that all the characters are given the space to make mistakes and also be bad people. Because, you know, when you're a teen, make those mistakes when you're young. Because guess what? You're you're underage. So that means it's. It's a slap on the wrist, and, and that's Facebook cool. doesn't exist yet because yep. it's 1999. <laughs> that's not coming back to haunt you the same way it does now. And yeah, no, I think this movie is it's so much fun, and I think everyone is putting in really good performances, at least for what they're asked to do. Some people are definitely better than others, um, specifically like Sarah Polly and like Timothy Oliphant are, are just MVPs of this film. And I want to thank Alex for bringing it because otherwise I would not have known about this until like four years from now when we would eventually do it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you're going to bring Go to the prom. Um, I can't imagine a better pairing. 
Oh man, this is this is the kind of person you bring to prom, and they're just they don't aren't even on the dance floor. They're in the hall, and you're just doing drugs, sitting yeah, against some lockers. Absolutely, they like smell a little bit in like a nice way, and they like smoke. They smoke cloves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Totally. I'm excited about them. <laughs> and Alex, thank you, the human, for coming because you're just wonderful and delightful, and I hope that. Our, our listeners want to hear more of you because you're just the bee's knees. Where can people find you on the internet if you want them to find you on the internet? I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alex Steed. Um, you are good is on Twitter and Instagram at You Are Good Pod. I also um, am on TikTok at Alex Steed and I follow uh, BJ on TikTok. Harmony, are you on TikTok? No, that's, I pop up on BJ's occasionally when she wants to do some gay shit. That's wise. Yeah, I occasionally, I occasionally see uh, BJ will you out like Grandpa from Texas Chainsaw Massacre to just be like, we're yeah. celebrating, we're celebrating. Yeah, one hundred percent. Gator, Grandpa, Gator. Yeah, that's exactly how I. Otherwise, I'm just sitting here minding my business, and she's just like, "Hey, babe, <laughs> hey," and I'm like, "Are we doing TikToks? Okay." Hey, there are a lot of trans teens that feel very seen and validated, and are given a lot of totally. hope by our existence. I know, and oh I God. think that's great. But also, I don't want to have to have the responsibility. I can barely manage being on Twitter most times. I don't post on there ever, and I don't use Instagram ever. Like, let's not get carried away yeah i i I do i want to thank you both like this is a highlight of my year i love your show very much i always wish nothing but the very best for you both and everything you do and i'm so excited that i got to do this with you thank you alex thank you so much you're the best you're one of my absolute favorite people and are just like the optimism that i need in my life whenever i see you post things like you're you're so great thank you And thank you all, as always, for listening. If you want to support the show, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com backslash thisendsupprom. We currently have a stretch goal that once we reach $500 a month, we will interrupt our schedule and finally do Grease because you all apparently want to listen to me suffer and slowly descend into madness on here. And if that's what you want... You gotta pay for it. I'm glad that all of my most hated movies aren't teen films. Yeah. We're not doing Rent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I should just make you do Rent. You can't. It's not a teen movie. (laughs) (laughs) But you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at ThisEndsAtProm. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I am there and don't post enough based on my own comments earlier. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, the biggest thank you in the world to the Sonderbombs for letting us use their song title as our theme song. They are just the best. Clockbound just celebrated its six-month release it anniversary. Did. Our copy will get here in the mail eventually. It's, it's in Ohio. Someone's <laughs> holding on to it and keeps not remembering to send it to us because <laughs> it got sent to the old address. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's trapped in Ohio, it's, as is anyone in I mean, Ohio. So so <laughs> are most of the Sonderbombs, I believe. So. <laughs> well, Harmony, do you have any cool indie artists that you want people to check out this week? I do. Okay, so um, there's actually a really, really cool uh, singer out there. She goes by Kississippi and just released her uh, album Mood Ring. Uh, it's super duper tight. Very sad but also happy and dreamy and danceable. Some of these songs have been released as singles like before the album's release, but like some of the highlight tracks I think are like We're So In Tune, Around Your Room, Hell Being. Um, I, I definitely just 
recommend listening to it. It's super fucking cool. Awesome. And as always, we do have the playlist for that. You can check it out and uh, Harmony will put some good tracks on there. But thank you all for listening. Thank you for being here. We adore you. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Goodbye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.